Hello everybody, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Talks for Our Times. Today I have sitting across from me one of the most influential men in my life because he was the first employer at my job and then we ended up very close and it pretty much set me up on the entire path of me wanting to do hospitality, me falling into a lot of different spaces that I know definitively are the ones I'm gonna end up in. Because of that, it came from him, came from him hiring me on a whim when I was an annoying little 16 year old. But that um, pretty much got us here. So this is Daniel J. Colby, our DJ. He is the owner of the best ice cream shop in Florida, the Wilton Creamery, and he's a beast. So, hi DJs. Hi. Um, so I'm gonna pretty much get right into it. Lots of things to talk about with him because you know a lot. Because <laughs> I know a lot. And we're just going to have some fun with it. So thank you guys so much for being here. And my name is Reese Kalinsky. This is Talks for Our Times. And this is DJ Colby. Let's do this thing. Alrighty. So... I know that you were an absolute beast when it came to like early academics, like high school, all that. Um, why don't you tell a story real quick of like your SAT thing? Because it was ridiculous. So the first time I took the SATs, uh, I was really nervous and I wanted to study for it, but I was also working. So I just didn't. Um, and I figured, okay, well, I have three more years to take it because this is my sophomore SAT. So I took it. And um, I got called back about six hours later to come in early on Monday to talk to my uh, principal with my parents. So I had to go in and then they accused me of cheating because I, I scored a perfect score. Um, and all of us were a little surprised, <laughs> um, to say the least. And because math was not something I did really well, it was just, okay, it worked. Mm -hmm. um, so they made me take it one-on-one -on -one with a proctor and I scored one point wrong in the math section. So of course the 1600 original counted, but everyone was kind of amazed. <laughs> um, and so that and my writing samples um, that my creative writing teacher sent to uh, her professors at Columbia kind of set up what I thought was going to be my future. Wow. And what kind of shifted you from that path of Columbia and like what could have been like all these undergrad schools and graduate school? Because 1600, I, I don't, I, I went to a great high school. I know people at UF and Ivy Leagues. I don't know anyone who got anywhere close to that score. So I what, actually like, know two other people that scored perfect scores. And I know someone that scored a perfect score um, on the, um, the teacher exam. And they made her do exactly the same thing they made me do. So it was kind of crazy. She's telling the story and I'm like, wait, that happened to me <laughs> too. Um, and so um, basically my grandfather passed away. Mm -hmm. And so there was no money and I had a partial ride to Columbia. So my mother and father were divorced and my father wanted me to move to California because we didn't have a relationship. I didn't meet him until I was 10. Mm. So um, he lived two and a half miles away and I didn't meet him my entire life, nor his entire side of the family. So um, I was dropped off the day after Christmas when I was 10. Um, this is your dad. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Just give you yeah, a surprise. <laughs> surprise um, dad. And so uh, we had a really limited relationship 
until I was 15, and he wanted me to move to California um, and finish my last two years of high school there, and he would pay for the rest of Columbia, and I was not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, because I was doing well in school, I was doing well with friends, um, I was starting to figure out who and what I was. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a no. And so he said no, he mm -hmm. wouldn't pay for school. And so there was no other means of money, so I stopped writing. Um, I didn't write another thing until I was probably in my 40s. Wow. Um, not that I didn't have thoughts of writing, not that I didn't have ideas. I have an idea book. Mm -hmm. um, and single line, there's 28 pages of ideas that I just have never done because I was so crushed by that experience. Yeah, 100%. Um, going back to your father, so, because I know that's something a lot of people go through is having that father figure missing. And I know good amount of people who are listening to this are men who will probably like to have children or could end up in the position that they may get a girl pregnant young and the situation's like rough. What effect did it have on you like not having that father figure and what would you say to people who like, you know, are thinking about maybe like getting away from being a father figure and the effect that might have on a kid? Um, well, it had multiple effects, but um, my grandfather kind of stood in. Um, I was the first grandchild. Um, so I was spoiled, but it was also a perfect child. So, like, I didn't cross the street without holding someone's hand. Um, <laughs> you know, the neighbors would call me and say, go pick me up a pack of Salem, go pick me up a pack of Marlboro. And I was five. <laughs> and every neighbor, all the way down to the store that I would go to to pick up everybody's cigarettes, when I was five, um, I would get to the corner and one of the neighbors would hold my hand to cross the street. Um, so... You know, that's the kind of child I was. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that all kids were like that. I had no idea. Um, so my upbringing was very different. Um, I have my grandmother and grandfather, and then my aunt. My mother was the second oldest, mm -hmm. uh, and my aunt was the youngest. So she was 13 when I was born. So, I mean, she was my built-in babysitter. Wow. Um, and then my uncle still lived there until he got married. So I shared a room with one of my uncles. Um, so, and he was only, he's only 14 years older than I am. So, yeah, um, my mother had me when she was 19, my father was 20. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's, um, I had a lot of support. And then after my grandfather passed away, my uncle was in the army and he moved back. So then, there was a father figure also. Okay. Um, so, but as far as the rebellious stage, that started after my grandfather passed away. Um, and I was a punk rock kid, but I was a good <laughs> punk rock kid. So, you know, dyeing my hair 30 different colors and nobody understood. And I was trying to figure out who and what I was. Right. So that was, a pretty visual way of saying, unless you're like-minded, stay away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't pierce my face. I didn't get tattoos on my face or do weird stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I dyed my hair every week. And then my mother, my grandmother's um, 
hairdresser noticed and was like, hey, so my, my clients ask for purple hair and green hair. Can you do that? And I was like, of course. So she literally paid for me to go to school to be a colorist. Wow. Um, and what age was that around? I was 17. Wow. So I went for uh, five months every night after school um, to do color, to learn how to do color. And then my colors got weirder. And then I had like six different colors at a time. <laughs> um, but when the old ladies would ask for blue hair, I could actually give them blue hair. Yeah, my, that's my grandma. She gets purple hair and red hair because mm -hmm. she's a badass grandma. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and it would last longer. They wouldn't have to, you know, come back every week. Um, so they were much more appreciative. So they would tip really well. So that was fun. Um, and the whole time, I mean, I grew up in a catering family and my grandmother catered. So I was seven when I started catering. Wow. Um, so I've never really had a job outside of the restaurant industry. And is that when, like when you're seven, is that when the food industry thing started? Like, did That's it just when I was like... allowed to help. Mm -hmm. um, so we had um, lots of local jobs, but um, I wasn't allowed to help because I wasn't allowed to use the knife yet. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, I would go shopping, like I'd push the cart, but I wasn't allowed to actually do anything with the food. Um, so that was fun. And was it just like as soon as you started actually being able to cut with a knife and make the food, it just clicked for you? Yeah. But all of us. All of us. Like, my grandmother had six kids um, that lived. I mean, there were nine total. Mm -hmm. um, but six that survived past childhood. And um, then my cousins also, my younger cousins, all took part in catering. Wow. Um, my grandmother is 92. She only stopped catering seven years ago. Wow. So. so like the and there was just, there was nobody to take over the business because... We all went and did other things. Mm -hmm. Like stereotypical grandma, just ready to cook always. Yep, she was ready to go. Like <laughs> at, at a moment's notice, she could make you 20 things and, and really, really well. That's so good. Um, so how did, and I did the same thing. I worked all of high school, like as soon as I could get a job, I pretty much did, as you know. Yeah. And then you were doing it even before then you got a job. How do you think that, like positives and negatives of that as like high school, having a part-time job in balancing school because I know like all the good things they did for me, but there was also like, you know, missing football games on Friday nights right. and things like that. So I, I think it's choosing how you want your life to be and, and the path you need to go. And um, I mean, I come from a family of workaholics. Um, so, you know, it was not, I was never not going to be working. Mm -hmm. um, I could never, um, like I can't even leave the store now. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's problematic. Um, but also, it's good. Because um, I was pretty controlled the entire time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, I worked at, when I was 17, I got a job at Denny's. Uh, and I wanted to be a, a host and they made me a dishwasher. Mm. I was like, cool, okay, I'll wash dishes. <laughs> so, I washed dishes. Um, and then suddenly they had me on the overnights on Friday and Saturday night. <laughs> and I was like, wait, but I just got out of school at 4 o'clock and now I'm going to work at 10 and getting out at 7 a.m. <laughs> it's awful. So that, yeah, so my Saturdays and Sundays, I slept half the day. So 
kind of crazy. Yeah, definitely crazy. Um, I definitely get it. I mean, I had a much easier shift, but I remember when I told people, when I got hired at 15, I, it was to work 6 to 1.30, Friday and Saturday night. And like everyone I told was like, is that even legal? I was like, if my parents say yes, it is. And they said yes. So, And, you know, it definitely helped me. I mean, I was making good money for the age and I had money that I was like spending on like I was having this like side money that I was like using for what you use money for when you're 15 which is like buying McDonald's and then I had the money like I was letting paycheck after paycheck go into the bank account and that like that set me up and it's the same thing with my whole family I mean, my little brother's the same way he's working full-time now and even when he's working part-time it was still like oh you know like I'll put 90% of it away because I'm 17 like what do I need to spend it on and that was big for me and then just like I was one of the kids I had no idea what they wanted to do like every other one of my friends knew they wanted to be a vet and go to US and had this whole plan and I was like dude like I hope I pass math class so once I actually got you know this job in hospitality and serving people in food service I was like I kind of like this and then I got another one and then like tried out a different few I definitely noticed it's a space for me and I wouldn't have like had that without you know going through that early experience of like okay I'm gonna go get a job even though I'm 15 like right. it's gonna get, I'm gonna like lose time but I'm doing a lot better than most of my friends because you know they didn't work Friday and Saturday nights when they were 15 so right. I definitely think there's good things there um, I think you also the exposure you get to people in the hospitality industry like you're a people person to start with mm-hmm. so um, a lot of the kids now are not um, and so it's it's a very different situation now mm-hmm. And it's still the same part of the generation, which is weird. Yeah, 100%. It's only people that are like four years younger than me. And, and they're completely different. Mm-hmm. The work ethic is completely different. The point of view of everything is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm remarkably realistic. Um, he really so, um, so, like, I was trying to sign up for Aetna. Like, to have a ten thousand dollar insurance policy for all of the kids mm-hmm. that worked for me, as long as they worked longer than six months, that I would pay for that. Um, but then there were other plans. They were like, "Oh, well, you can offer this to your employees," and I'm like, "Cool. How much is it?" And they're like, "We don't know. We won't know until we plug all the in- all the numbers in." And I'm like, oh, "Okay," but I can't go to them with an unknown. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, we'll put in their age, we'll put in, you know, their demographics, and, you know, it'll populate, and everyone will be slightly different. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't yeah. do that. Because this generation, they work enough to pay for their tattoos, their pot, their, you know, getting a couple drinks, mm-hmm. and, yeah, like, get some piercings, get some, um, some food. And that's all they want to work. Yeah. So like 26, 27 hours, and then they're done. Mm-hmm. If that. And then, right. And then if they decide that, you know, I want to buy something like, I want to buy an Xbox or I want to buy a PlayStation. So I'll just pick up hours for the next two or three weeks and then I'm done. Then you're done. <laughs> yeah. Because I have it now. So now I need the time to spend. So, um, and they, they expect to be waiting on people. Like, they know what the job is. Mm-hmm. But they're not gonna go over and beyond. They're not gonna be super friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really rare for this generation, the end of this generation, um, to be super friendly when you meet them. And like, like all you have to be is nice. Yeah. That's all you have to be. Mm-hmm. Just smile. Right. And so they'll walk up and they'll just stare at people. <laughs> like, 
not say hello, not greet them. I'm like, no, really, you have to say hello because people need yeah, to know. Yeah, you, you told me about like guests coming up and being like, I said hi to her three times and she didn't even say hi back. She gave my ice cream, but that was it. And right. it's like, we're also humans. There's like, you don't need to be jumping for joy when a customer comes in because who does that? But, you know, absolutely. Like, ask them, how, like, hey, how are you? Like, even if they just say, good, cool, like, you're a human now and you right. passed. <laughs> now we right. can move on. You've acknowledged that they exist. <laughs> Um, and that's all that I'm asking you to do because yeah. that's part of being nice. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a little challenging. I can imagine. So speaking on that, like, how do you handle it? Because I mean, you've seen, like, I think the average age was probably, I think probably still is between like 15, 22. When I was in there, like, I think the, there was a couple older employees, but like most was like in college, just in high school, just out of college range. Yeah, we're, we're 18 to like 24 now. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And, but I mean, from eight years ago when we opened until November, I only hired 30 people ever, 30 total. Yeah. Um, and since November, I'm now at 18. Right. Um, because. Which is crazy. Yeah. Because I, when I I was in there, it was so like, everyone had been there either year and a half, two years, three years, four years, or like opened the store. Right. And now it's in out. And that's even at my new job is the same way where I'm like, I'm the only like cornerstone left. I was there since like six months after they opened. And then now it's like, it goes me, one other person that got hired that year, then everyone else got hired in the last six months. And that's it. And it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and throwing money at it isn't solving the problem. Um, it's just like people can yell about $15 an hour, but I pay that. Mm-hmm. So that's not the issue. Right. Um, I had someone call out two minutes after her shift started. <laughs> Which isn't how calling out works. Right. <laughs> and, and I was like, hey, so, you know, I've picked you up before when you didn't have a ride. Why did, well, I've tried to find a ride the whole time. Um, but, you know, no one got back to me. I'm like, okay, well, but I would have picked you up if you gave me an hour to notice. I would have picked you up and brought you to work. Right. It wouldn't have been a big deal. You live 10 minutes away. Yeah. Um, you know, another one left a month and a half early because she was getting a whole new wardrobe from her parents so that she could go to school at FAU, which is 20 minutes from her house because her parents want her to have the college experience. And I'm like, that's not the <laughs> as, college experience. As someone who went to FAU and lived with their parents, I can tell you it's not the college experience. And anyone I know who's transferring to another school like I am, it's the same thing where they're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's college, but it's more like you show up, you go to your classes, you go home, and like one kid throws a party every month. Right. Like, that's it. Like, it's not the college experience. Right. So, I mean, like, I'm like, that's not the college experience when it's a $25 Uber ride home. Right. Or your parents can stop over to take you to dinner every weekend. Yeah. Or your sister can go up because she wants to go to college parties, quote unquote. Yeah. I, I air quoted there. So air quoted there. <laughs> um, so, like, that's just spending a lot of money. Um, And she totally thinks that that's going to give her the college experience. And I'm like, the college experience is going to school, you know, three hours away, four hours away, where you can't come home when there's a problem. Right. Um, Where you actually have to deal with stuff on your own. Um, So, and my generation is responsible for this. um, Because we were sort of left alone Mm -hmm. a lot of times. A lot of my friends had, you know, key a key to the house. Mm-hmm. Both their parents worked. Um, and so they would come home from school and they would let themselves in and they'd make themselves a snack um, in the toaster oven. And then they would 
lock the door and go out and play with the friends until the streetlights came on and you had to be home when the streetlights came on. Yeah. Um, and so my generation is like, no, you can't be out of my sight. There has to be an adult watching you at all times. Um, there aren't more predators than there were. Right, in the past. Yeah, it's, it's the same amount, mm-hmm. probably. Um, so the difference is that we helicopter everything. Yeah. Um, and the parents that don't are the parents that are successful. Yeah, and you said that, and the whole time you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, my parents aren't like that at all. And I'm not to be like, tote myself or anything, but like, I say to anyone I meet, like, how much I love and adore my parents, especially hearing how awful parents are (laughs) to like kids in this generation, like people I know and girls and stuff. And like, mine, like, once I got out of like the like super young stage where it's like, I don't know anything, I'm like a kid, like putting my like forks in sockets. Like, once I got out of that stage and they yelled at me and like made sure I knew what was right and wrong, they more or less were like, Okay, like if you're going out to like a sleepover, I want to like talk to the parents first. But then it's like I don't really want to know what you did at sleepover. And once I was in high school, and especially in college, like I don't want to know what you're doing at all. Just like come home safe. Don't drive drunk. Don't be dumb. But that's it. Like very like hands off. Like we've taught you how to do your life. Now. Mm-hmm. now show us that you know how to do your life. Right. And that's the thing is I've always said like the the parents who are the most strict like raise the sneakiest kids because you have to because no matter like it's very because kids are gonna be kids kids are gonna be kids and especially when it's like you tell them you can't do this like I really want to do that thing really do unless it's like something that your parents and all my friends do it yes all my friends do it I'm the only person who can't I'm gonna find a way to do it I'm gonna find a way to do it I'll you know set up a fake pillow in the bed I'll sneak out find a way to hide the phone like it's in there especially nowadays there's so many ways to hide phones and make plans and everyone knows like on snapchat that you could get a drug dealer like 20 minutes from now like it's easy so it's (laughs) it's definitely easy like that yeah i mean so you know my generation should know that yeah we were mostly alone for long periods of time because our parents worked um i didn't have that situation um i was pretty much given free reign. I didn't have a curfew ever. Um, but I knew that I needed to be home by 10 or 11. And I knew my grandmother would not sleep if I wasn't home. So I had enough respect for her that I'd want to. Right. Um, and there'd be like the occasional Friday or Saturday night um, where I would stay out later and then I'd feel really bad. <laughs> because she's still awake. Because uh, she's not going to go to sleep, and, and she could hear a bird fart three hundred feet away. So, like, there was no sneaking in. Um, so, like, you knew she was going to know that you came home. So there was, you know, you just did what you should do. And yeah, it's fine. Um, just like alcohol was never a thing for me. Um, like. We would go to the liquor store when I was five or six, and my aunt would be like, so, because drinking age was 18, so she could buy alcohol. She'd be like, so, do you want something? And she's like, you like cherries, so do you want cherry vodka? <laughs> and so she'd buy me a bottle of cherry vodka, we'd get back, and then she would like pour some on a spoon and let me try it, and then I'd scream at how horrible it was. Right, because when you're six, it's awful. Right. And uh, that would be that. And so, like, my uncles would offer me a sip of their beer, and they'd take it and be like, why do you drink that? That's terrible. <laughs> um, give me lemonade or iced tea. Yes. Um, and so alcohol was never off the table. And then when I was seven or eight, and, like, I would open the liquor cabinet and look at it, 
And my grandmother just said, you know, hey, so if you ever want to drink, you can, as long as you stay home. So, like, when I was in high school, uh, people were like, hey, do you want to go to this party? And I'm like, sure, what are we doing? And they're like, oh, we're hanging out drinking beer. I can do that at home. Like, <laughs> they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I can do that at home as long as I don't leave. <laughs> so, and they're like, what do you mean? Like, it was a completely foreign concept. <laughs> yes. So it was not taboo for me, so I didn't do it. Yeah. Because why? You I could, was allowed. You could say that line 20 times more. It wasn't taboo for me, so I didn't do it. Like, right. Your parents pretty much were just like, okay, like it's, you're going to do it one way or another. Right. Might as well, like, even it in. And of course, it's like, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone you need to, like, let your kids drink. But, you know, it's kind of like... But look what it does. Like, it's it clearly for, and I, I'm, mine are the same way. I, like, they weren't as, it was like a couple years, but like, I was always like having a sip of wine. Like, if they was at the table, and like, up until, even now, I still don't like wine. So I'd still be like, ugh. And especially when I was little, I'd be like, this is awful. How do you drink this? It's like, it's just bad grapes. Right. And then, same with beer, same with whatever. But like, they were never like, it's this horrible thing. It was just like, hey, like, if they, if they knew I was going out somewhere in high school, they'd be like, please be smart. Don't get in the car. Right. Because there's friends who, like, aren't going to make the decision like you, and they'll be like, I'm good to drive. And, you're going to be dumb, so don't do that. But outside of that, like, they were pretty, like, hands-off, too, especially with that. And it's like, and now, like, you know, I'm a college kid. Of course I drink, but it's like, I'm like, good. Like, I, like high, school, high school to me is when it was, like, I was more of a time I shouldn't have been doing it. Because it's like, you know, I did, I did, it was just literally just all 16-year-olds and we all, like, were stupid. So I was like, okay, like, I wasn't doing it then. And now right. I do it, it's like, okay, I'm at a club or I'm at a house and I'm sitting still. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm safe. Exactly. So. Yeah, I mean, if, if you don't make it, weird and like an experiment um and you normalize it because mm-hmm. it's normal in your life so why wouldn't you normalize it for your kid right um so if it's normalized it's not a big deal yeah and so it's not taboo so you don't do it right and i didn't go to parties where it was focused on drinking because that doesn't really interest me you already did it for a couple of years now right <laughs> it's just like drinking i could have i could have if i wanted to i just didn't have any interest yeah it's just drinking <laughs> right um, so kind of just like shift gears again. So when was like the, so Columbia didn't work out, hair coloring you did for a while. What was the shift from that to like professional level, like food industry? And then, cause I know you were sous chef in Vegas for a time yeah. and bunch of stuff like that. So what was the turn there from? So, um, I guess I started working in the restaurant business and figured, okay, well I'll be a manager. Um, and so I would become chef managers and um, then I'd become an actual manager and um, then I'd be like, well, you know, I, I don't know how to cook, like for real, for mm-hmm. real. Like I can cook for catering, but that's not the same as cooking for orders. Right. Um, and so a catering chef is super different than an order by order chef. Um, and then fine dining is completely different from mm-hmm. that. Um, and then pastry is completely different from that. So I had the catering thing. So then I asked to step down as a manager at Fridays um, to learn the kitchen. Because I, I had worked in the kitchen a couple of positions, but I didn't actually know um, the kitchen. I could fry, but it was messy. Mm-hmm. And battered everything by hand at that point. Yeah. Um, and I could do the plate nacho station, which was making salads um, and, you know, making 
the garnish for things and things of that nature and nachos obviously mm -hmm. um, but you know I knew how to work those two stations but I didn't know how to do saute um, had no idea so I learned every position in the kitchen mm -hmm. um, and then I became the kitchen manager and then I went back to the bar um, and I was bar manager for like three store openings I opened um, 28 stores for Fridays wow um, I left Fridays and I went to Starbucks. What was the like push factor from to Fridays? Um, there were three of us that were in contention. I, I got my general manager fired um, because he kept changing the routing of beverages for the bar mm -hmm. to food cost. So, because everybody in the store bonused on food costs, yeah, but only he and I bonused on bar. Interesting. And so, I was teaching classes in Dallas for Fridays about being a bar manager, and I was teaching their classes for um, new district managers, and I was teaching their classes for general managers, mm -hmm. and I was teaching their classes for like first week managers. Um, so I would fly down. Dallas from Delaware and teach classes for a week and then come back and then run my store. So my store had to run by itself mm -hmm. when I wasn't there. The bar had to run by itself. And my numbers just kept going crazy when I would go away. And I couldn't figure out. Like crazy? Super high. Mm -hmm. Like while my costs would get super high and I couldn't figure it out. Um, and then I went into the computer system and found out that a lot of things were being routed to food instead of alcohol cost. And I'm like, wait, that's where all my stuff's missing. So I switch it back. Um, because I was the tech manager for my franchise group. Mm, okay. um, so whenever there was a computer problem, I would be the one that would fix it or I'd have to escalate it beyond me. And so I was like, you know, this keeps happening. And I talked to the people above me and they were like, no, it's being manually done. I'm like, oh. Mm. So um, I talked to my general manager about it, and he was like, well, you know, we all bonus on food. I'm like, cool. It's my reputation, though. Right. And that means something to me. Yeah. And also, it means something to this franchise group that a franchise manager is teaching corporate classes. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a feather in their cap. I'm the only, only franchise manager doing this stuff. Um, and he said, well, then you probably shouldn't leave your store. So I had to have a conversation with my district manager mm -hmm. and my district manager showed up and I didn't realize that he had a brand new car and my general manager was out in his trunk, which he did every shift. Mm -hmm. He would go out in his trunk and, um, with his coffee cup and I didn't think anything about it. I was pretty naive apparently. Um, but he would go out and pour himself liquor into a coffee cup and walk around and drink Makes while sense. he was working. And so my district manager parked right behind him and watched him pour alcohol into his coffee cup. Wow. Yeah. And fired him on the spot before we could even have the conversation. Goodness. Yeah. So, um, so then there were three of us that were in the running to become the general manager of that store. And he put two of us in charge of the store for three months mm -hmm. um, while having 
the other person go to another store and do his training there while we were doing it for real. Mm -hmm. And then he brought that other person back as their general manager. Okay. Um, and we only had five stores. So after running the store for three months, I was like, I don't, I don't want to be the assistant general manager anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I want to do, like I want it to be my show. Right. Um, so Starbucks was opening. They were not very big yet. What year was this? 1992. Wow. Um, so they were not very big. Um, there were only five that I knew of. Um, they didn't have a single store in Delaware yet. We only had like six stores in New Jersey. Um, so I interviewed um, and I had two district managers fighting over me mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that they were fighting over me. Um, so I actually trained really far away from where I lived. <laughs> um, and I did that training there and then I was supposed to have a store, but that store didn't open. Okay. Um, so they would just kind of put me wherever. So I got to watch lots of different store managers do lots of interesting things. <laughs> um, and then they asked me if I would train a class since I, you know, trained classes for Fridays, right. you know, would you train classes for us? And I was like, well, I don't think I know enough yet. Right. Um, and so they were like, well, what do you need to know? So the district manager that won me um, was like, so if I just get you every training manual in the company um, and every training manual before that, you know, the ones that are expired that have bad information, um, you can start with the old ones and then move up to the new ones and you can see the progression, see where we're going. Um, and then you can trade class. I was like, okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. So he gave me 28 books and sat me down in a trading center. And like one day a week or two days a week, I would go and help different store managers to see what stores look like. Mm -hmm. um, how did the things compare when it came to like, TJ Fridays was like the learning how to train people. Was that very like on the job? It was super on the job. Mm -hmm. And it was also like back in the day, like when I first became a server for them mm -hmm. back in the day, you had to take a food test and an alcohol test and you had to score 90 just to become a server there. That's crazy. Um, I worked, I was the head server at Pizzeria Uno <laughs> and I applied 26 times <laughs> and Fridays were like, finally the host manager was like, Hey, so, um, you, you keep applying. I keep seeing a new application from here like every month. We throw it away and you, we apply. And I'm like, because I want to work here. He's like, why? I'm like, because this is the next level for me. And this is where I want to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your servers make the most money. And you guys work the hardest. Um, and so, he was like, okay, I'm going to hire you. Um, and so I made it through training, no problem, because um, I studied my ass off, and I'm good at remembering things. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't really hard. Um, but servers were rated, and it wasn't just like a nice top 10. It was one through however many servers. Oh, man. <laughs> and the first ratings came out, 
Um, and I was number 67 of 67. Wow. And I was like, okay. And then three months later, I was number 62. And I was like, okay. So I, I literally sat every single manager in the store down. And I was like, hey, so what do you think I need to work on to be better? Because if you're in the top 10, you got to choose your, your shifts, mm. which means you got to dictate how much money you made. Right. Um, so they were like, well, you're not, you're, you don't help the hosts, or you don't help the bussers, or you don't do this, or you don't do that. So each one told me what they thought. And so I, I literally stole training materials. Um, and I read them. Um, and I figured out what their jobs were so that I knew what I needed to be better at. Mm -hmm. um, and when the six month numbers came in, um, I was number 11. Mm, there we go. And then people were like, what the hell? Um, and then I got promoted to assistant head server. Wow. Um, and so then I'm teaching classes and everyone's like, oh, well you, you just snuck your way in there. I'm like, no, I, I work. Yeah, you must be right. Like, I, I actually worked at home, too, because I wrote all these things. Yeah, literally. Um, <laughs> the stolen textbooks. So, yeah. So, I mean, Fridays was, was hardcore. Um, and I worked there for nine years mm -hmm. as a server. Wow. Um, and I opened all these stores um, as a city trainer because, you know, that's where I learned frying and, and I learned expo and I learned um, plate nacho and plate I learned scrap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I learned all these positions because, um, and also I was good to have around because I could lift kegs by myself. Mm -hmm. And they were like, what the hell? <laughs> it takes two or three of us to do this. Um, yeah, you so, can't see it, but he's he's a big dude, so. So yeah, before my back injury. Before I was, the back I was <laughs> beast. <clears throat> so how did that, like, the Fridays super on hand compared to, like, I mean, I guess you did a bunch of textbook stuff for them, too. But like, how did, like, Fridays, like, I learned how to, like, work here from working here. As for to start with, like, we're going to give you every book ever. Read right. it. And how so, was I mean, I, there's only really one position at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody has to do everything. Right. Um, so very similar to the concept that I created. Yeah. Um, so there's no register person. There's no just working the bar person. So you have to be good at everything. Yeah. Um, and drink stuff didn't exist anymore. Mm. I knew all of them. So when some, when a, a customer that moved from Seattle would be like, hey, so I want, I'd be like, oh yeah, I know how to make that. <laughs> like nobody else would know how to make it. Right. Like managers that worked for the company five and six years didn't know how to make it, wow. but I did. Um, and I was opening all these stores with them um, so I became the, um, the manager that had more, um, specialist roles in the entire company than, you know, entire districts would have. Mm -hmm. So I was a new store opening specialist. I would take, um, three of my shift leads and used to take two days with like every manager in the district to set up a store and I could take three of my shift leads and myself, and they would still send all the managers, but they'd go out in the parking lot and pay, play Frisbee. Mm -hmm. And we would label, and we would set up the entire store in six hours. Wow. Um, and set up the back room, and 
one of my shift leads was an artist, the artist that I use at Walden Creek. Right? Wow. Um, so she would do all the blackboards. And she was super fast and really good. Right. So um, she could do all the blackboards and she could do the back, because blackboards at Starbucks were two-sided. So she would set up the next month's stuff for them um, so that nobody had to learn how to do it on the fly, that mm -hmm. they could easily answer it. Wow. Um, but we could set up a store, an entire store, as long as we got everything in six hours. Wow. Stuff like that's just <laughs> crazy. And it's just like a level of like, not to say work you don't see anymore, but I just like even hearing that stuff with, you had to score this high to be a server and you had to do this to like even get the job. I mean, right. now, and like you, I, I couldn't even imagine like being in this generation, like being ranked like first to last on something. Like yeah. we're such like the like get a reward for showing up. Like I couldn't, like there's probably still a lot of stores that be like employee of the month. Like I can't imagine them being like, this is the worst employee. Right. Like I couldn't yeah, even and, imagine working at a place that would do that. And so that was, it depended on the type of person you were. It was either fully devastating mm -hmm. Or it was, I'm going to fix this because that's my reputation. That's right. how other people see me in this store. And it's posted not for a week. It's posted for the entire three months. <laughs> so, like, when new people start, they're like, oh. You're that guy. You're, you're number 67. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, and, you know, on the second month when someone that started after you is now, like, two points higher than you, two places higher, that's a thing. Right. Um. So, you know, I worked for Starbucks for, um, for seven years and like I was teaching classes that senior learning specialists were allowed to teach and they were the only ones. Um, I was teaching district manager level classes. Um, I was also the recruiting specialist so I would do panel interviews with our HR people um, because I knew what I was looking at mm -hmm. as far as whether someone can actually be a manager or not. Um, all of my initial shift leads, so all five of my shift leads from when we opened our store became assistant managers. Wow. Three of them became store managers. Um, so, you know, um, I kept the same staff for six years at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, I had, I was labor management specialist. There were only six of us in the entire country. Wow. Um, so we actually diagrammed how labor should look going forward um, with all the changes that we knew were coming with the automated machines and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but that also, seeing all these changes, I knew that Starbucks was going to change. Right. And it was going to be easy. And it was not going to be as fun. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be challenging so that people weren't going to stay. Because if you can push a button and make a perfect drink, then there's there's no challenge to it. Exactly. And the people that are there for the paycheck will be there for the paycheck. And the people that were there for the challenge are going to go someplace else. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And what was the next step after Starbucks? Because I know there was some time between before Creamery well, popped up. While I was at Starbucks, um, I sort of made my mind up that I should probably get serious. So I'm in my 30s. Um, and I was like, I should get serious and actually get a degree at some point. So I, um, I knew a chef. We were, we raised, I raised parrots when I lived in Delaware. So, um, and that's, that's how I knew him. 
mm -hmm. um, and he worked at Du Chimonet, which was a three-star restaurant in Philadelphia. Um, and he was a sous chef. And so I was like, hey, so um, I want to do what you do. And he's like, are you sure? Because <laughs> it's not easy. I'm like, hey, I'm already in the restaurant business. Um, so he was like, okay, so I teach at ACC Atlantic County Community College, um, their culinary program. So he's like, so come. So I went, I talked to the administration and we decided that um, I was already a general manager of multiple concepts. Mm -hmm. um, I was a budget specialist. Um, they gave me their budget final uh, test for the budget class and I scored a 94 on it. Wow. Without actually taking the class. <laughs> um, so they were like, so we're just going to pass you on the business classes because you've been doing it for so long. Right. Um, so you need to do all the labs and all the culinary. Okay. So, um, but a lot of that was really easy. Mm -hmm. So a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of my teachers would be like, so you worked in the restaurant business for a long time, or have you gone to culinary school before? I'm like, no, I haven't gone to school before, but since I was seven. Like, okay. Yeah. So um, we're gonna final test you out of this class because you're wasting our time and you're <laughs> you're frustrating other people. Because <laughs> you're too good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, so I got down to six classes. So I took the six classes and. Um, a month and a half before I graduated, um, the culinary director of uh, Caesars in Atlantic City um, was looking for a couple chefs um, and came to school, you know, see what they had. And um, the professor was like, You don't really want me, you want him. Wow. So they talked to me and said, Okay, you know, we had all the the business side of it, but if you can write menus, and I'm like, I can write menus. So I went the next week and they showed me their menu and told me to pick any three dishes and make the dishes that I think are what was on the menu. Mm -hmm. um, and all the ingredients were there. They didn't show me around the kitchen. Literally didn't show me anything. Mm -hmm. um, the prep cooks were there. And I had to make one completely new dish. So I went back with the menu and without a recipe, and I made my version of their dishes. Do you remember the dishes? I don't. <laughs> um, one was a fried chicken with a cream sauce, um, but I don't remember exactly what. It had blistered tomatoes. Mm. Um, and then one was a trout. Um, in paper, so pretty easy. Right. Um, so I seasoned it more than they did, apparently, but that's a that's a non-issue. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Do you remember then, the dish you made? That was like your non-menu. Um, I I did it from scratch to bleeding. Mm. Um, so and um, but they were big. So like they're the size of raviolis, <laughs> right. but 
they, so there were only five of them mm. um, with gorgonzola um, and cream cheese and basil pesto. Wow. Uh, and there was a citrus cream sauce with that. So, um, so yeah, so I got the job. Got the job. And I was like, okay. So um, I gave my notice at Starbucks mm -hmm. and then I had to decide what I was doing at school mm -hmm. because this is 70 hours a week. <gasps> Good Lord. So I was like, hey, so like, what should we do? They're like, well, can, will they wait three weeks? And I'm like, no, they need me now. So I kind of just had to quit. Wow. Because I didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So I was a sous chef for a week. And then my chef left. Wow. And so there's like three other sous chefs. Um, and they're like, hey, so we choose you. I wow. was a fucking Pokemon. <laughs> um, and so then I had to redo the entire menu. Oh my lord. And no one knew how they felt about me yet because I'd only been there for a week. That's crazy. And the other chef, there's four other chef-driven restaurants in the building, and so I start going to meetings, and all the other chefs are like, you've been a chef for a week. Like, literally. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a lot of respect yet. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that was difficult, so... Um, and so, yeah, so that was Atlantic City and they um, had a celebrity chef coming in mm -hmm. to take over one of the restaurants so they were letting someone go and his restaurant was not the best restaurant. Um, it didn't do the most in sales, it didn't have a really interesting menu. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but he had a brand new house because he had just moved, he had just taken the job. Mm -hmm. He had a wife, he had three kids, he had a car payment. He was a good guy. Right. Um, and so, in New Jersey with unemployment, um, since everybody pays into it, the employer and the employee both pay into it, mm -hmm. when you're laid off, you get 90% of your pay. That makes sense. So, um, so they were going to let him off. Mm. And I was like, hey, so, you know, he can take over my restaurant and lay me off because of his situation. And the HR lady was like, and the food and beverage director was like, uh, that's not a thing, you can't really do that. And I'm like, well, you know, if, if that's what you're gonna do, then you should do that. Right. Um, because, you know, I'll start at 90% of my pay. So they gave me a year and a half um, of my health insurance. They uh, paid me 100% of my pay. Mm -hmm. um, so when they laid me off and they gave him my restaurant, and he only had it for three months before they laid him off. Too. Wow. So they had a couple of celebrity chefs come in and chefs that were not doing well at other Caesars locations that they I'd worked there for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one went into rehab 
he needed to not be in Vegas. Right. So they put him in Atlantic City, which is no better, by the way. <laughs> no better, by the way. <laughs> no better. But so, you know, there was that. Um, but, and then I moved down here. So it was either here or New Orleans. And I was like, I think New Orleans would destroy me. Yeah, after all that, I think it would be done. Yeah. That would be the nail in the coffin. <laughs> yeah, so I moved here. Um, and I just sort of worked wherever because pay down here is an awesome thing. No, not at all. Um, and employees are not awesome in high-end restaurants. Um, so I was like, I'll just take restaurant manager jobs until I can figure out what I want to do down here. Right. Um, because this is not a fine dining space. Mm -hmm. Um, there's upscale restaurants, but there's only a handful of fine dining. Yeah. Um, and comparing those to a lot of the other rest of the country, it's like, yeah, don't spend that money here. Well, I mean, we only recently got Michelin stars. Yeah. Like three, three months ago. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And then so, <clears throat> I know you met some people, and I know that ice cream wasn't like the I like wasn't like you didn't you didn't like wake wake up one day and we're like I need to be an ice cream shop owner. No, because I mean when I worked for Caesars, um, we kept losing pastry chefs, and they would do shitty things to pastry chefs. Um, so pastry chefs would come in at five o'clock in the morning because they weren't chefs. Mm -hmm. Air quotes again. Air quotes again. Um, so they would come in and bake off whatever they needed to bake. Um, and then they have to clean up the kitchen because they shared space with prep. And so when prep comes in between, most of the chefs would come in between seven and eight, um, their space had to be clean and reorganized. Um, you could finish your pastries, either, you know, proof them or, you know, whatever you needed to do to finish. Mm -hmm. um, and you would leave. At like nine o'clock in the morning, so there was four hours, and then you'd come back at six and work until ten to plate your desserts. <laughs> Interesting. And so that was only for a pastry chef that they split their day. Um, so six days a week, um, and so that was a little rough. Yeah, sounds awesome. Um, and so a lot of them would leave. So I was like, hey, so why don't you send me for pastry? And then you won't have to replace the pastry chef because on my team, I have a girl that's a cake decorator. She, she was actually one of my better chefs. Um, but she was a cake decorator. And then there was a guy that his parents owned a bakery and, um, and a pizza place. So he was familiar with doughs and baking. Um, and I figured, okay, well, he has kids. His wife works overnights. Mm -hmm. So like he only sees her for like an hour when he gets out of work. Right. And then they, you know, tag, you're it, for the kids, and that's it. That's <laughs> it, back to work. Right, so I figured, you know, let him come in and do baking on everything off at 5 a.m., and then he could stay and do prep. He could be done by noon, and then he has the day with his wife. Right. Um, and neither of them were super happy about that. She was like, hey, so cake decorating is what I do for fun. And I'm like... Right, but you don't, how many desserts are we gonna sell? You know, 15 or 20, you're still gonna be the sous chef. You just have to stop to decorate a plate every once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up selling quite a bit more desserts 
because they were pretty. Right, and now they were the quality was going up and right. So when when the quality's better, then it's easier, um, and everyone comes to the table with like new dessert ideas because it wasn't just one person that we were relying on. So I was like, I need everyone's help. Yeah. Um, and you know, here's some new flavors. Let's figure out what we're doing with them. Right. Um, so, you know, it worked out. So I I did two classes of pastry. Um, during the day while working at night wow. as the chef. Goodness. <clears throat> so I only made ice cream once. And, um, real ice cream, um, before we had a cheese platter. And the cheese platter in the restaurant, um, I would do an ice cream, a savory ice cream. Interesting. Uh, for the centerpiece of that. Um, so, you know, aromatherapy. That's uh -huh. where the aromatherapy that wow. I saw now came Interesting. from. Interesting. That's where the Manchego um, and Quince ice cream that I made a couple of years ago came from. Uh -huh. They were centerpiece items for our cheese platter. Wow. So um, I only made one sweet ice cream the entire time I was there. Wow. So um, we were looking at the space that just recently has become the Catherine. Before that, it was Foxy Brown. Before mm -hmm. that, it was a breakfast and lunch place on Broward Boulevard, and the guy retired, and a kid from Italy that went to um, Johnson & Wales in Miami. Um, he was from Italy. His, when he graduated, his parents gave him uh, $500,000 wow. to open the restaurant, and he spent it buying Italian equipment for the kitchen and you know, redoing the walls. Um, with plaster and mm -hmm. um, buying all new furniture. And then he went to open and he didn't have money for food. Which is what you needed, right? Right. So he asked his parents for more money and they said no. <laughs> because he wasn't employing people, his visa ran out. Wow, okay. So he had to go back to Italy. So um, my partner's former partner, um, is a sharky businessman and so he was like hey we should do something for like four years like, mm -hmm. we should open a restaurant and I was like yeah 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 but I didn't really mean it I was just saying yeah, yeah, yeah just saying yeah give him a shout out right and so when that space came available and we went and looked at it and it was perfect it was 25 mm -hmm. tables so I could cook and then talk to people mm -hmm. um and I was like, this is the best of both worlds. Yeah. I can manage the people and manage the kitchen at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was cute. Um, and we got into a bidding war with J Marks. And once it got to like 570,000, I was like, hey, the value is not there anymore. We're right. Done. Yeah. And he kept bidding. And at 610, he finally stopped. Jesus. And so um, J Marks went in. They had just opened their Federal Highway location and they gutted the kitchen that he had bought all that Italian super high equipment mm -hmm. and moved that to their, uh, their Fort Lauderdale location and then took all their, the used equipment they had in that location and put it and then put it back up for sale. And we went and looked at it again. They wanted the same amount of money with equipment that was terrible. So we were like, no. Um, so two weeks later, um, Joe doesn't like to lose. Yeah. 
This is the business partner that was bidding and bidding and bidding. This is Joe. Yeah. So he doesn't like to lose anything ever. So he gives me a call on a Tuesday. He says, are you off today? And I was like, yeah. He's like, come to this address. He texts me the address. And I was like, that's three blocks from my house. Mm -hmm. So I come and I'm like, okay. So there's a garage in the back. And then I go in, I walk around the front. I'm like, oh, they're balconies. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to walk in. And I asked the real estate agent if there was a stack to the ceiling, meaning there were, we could vent if there was a direct route mm-hmm. through all the, the condos above us um, to the ceiling so I could vent a hood system. And they said, there's one in this side, but I think it's on the other side of that wall mm-hmm. um, in the massage parlor. They're like, oh. And I can't, I can't take that space. Right. Because um, I can't make that turn to take it. Because uh, condensation will form with the yeah, oil. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can't fry So stuff. I was like, so I can't, well, I can't grill and can't fry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, so this spot's out. And he's like, well, it can't be out. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, um, I bought it. <laughs> I was like, well, it's 11.30. When did you buy it? And he said, I... At 10.25. And I was like, when did you see it? He said at 9.15. When did he call you to come? He, he called me at like 11 o'clock. So I was like, okay. Dude, he's like, so, so you need, he's like, you need to make something here. And I'm like, cool. Um, he's like, why don't you open a coffee shop? You, you know, you like coffee shops. And I'm like, because I want to bake. And I can't bake here. Because I can't vent. Right. Um, and... I was like, what can I make that I don't have to cook? And I was like, ice cream. I'm like, is there any valid ice cream here? And they were like, there's ice cream. And I'm like, is there any valid ice cream? Mm-hmm. Is there any interesting ice cream? And they were like, we don't know. So we pulled up Yelp. And I mean, we didn't go to Dairy Queen. Because Dairy Queen. Um, because <laughs> Dairy Queen. Um, but we started going to all the name donuts and all the ones that were four stars or higher. Mm-hmm. And we spent nine hours driving from ice cream shop to ice cream shop, trying ice cream and looking at ice cream and taking pictures. And I was like, there's no really good ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I'm sitting in the back seat and I'm Googling everything. I'm, I'm Googling culinary ice cream. And there were only seven in the entire country. And I was like, okay, so now there's eight. Now there's eight. So <laughs> let's do this then. Uh-huh. And this is <clears throat> the start of Bolton Creamer, which is how we met because I went to the high school down the street. I knew a person working there. Someone like quit super without notice kind of thing. And I just got a text like, hey, you want to work here? I was like, yeah, I want to work there. And, you know, that started that. But to, um, I kind of had, you kind of like sort of answer, right? But I saw this question, like, how did you get the ice cream to be like, so damn good because literally it's like like i've been to much places there's places down here i like but it's literally like everyone knows like there's a new flavor every week and like you do like the most ridiculous flavors in the world like how did you come like was it just like so much time in the industry and seeing so many flavors and all that but well i but i approach things differently than a home cook Mm -hmm. because i'm trained um because i've worked in a lot of restaurants yeah um because i'm interested in other cultures um, and I'm interested in cultures that you wouldn't necessarily think mm-hmm. um, 
And so when you're researching um, like Malaysian desserts, mm -hmm. um, there's no real good resource for that. Right. So, you know, you're piecing together things from here and there. And when you find an ingredient and you're like, what is it? Like, what does it taste like? Yeah. Um, how do I taste it? So, you know, and then you trying to track it down. And you ask people mm -hmm. of that culture, like, hey, what is this? And they, they're like, well, it's hard to describe. <laughs> well, okay, but try. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we have seven bases for the ice cream, all depending on what's going in it. Mm -hmm. um, milk fat, to be ice cream, it has to be 14%. Yeah. Uh, anything below that is frozen dessert. Mm -hmm. um, and then... So premium is 14%, then super premium is 18%, then ultra premium is 20. Wow. Um, and we go from 14 to 21, um, depending. Um, alcohol ice creams are always 21 to 23, but I try not to do 23 because you can actually feel the fat mm. on your tongue. Um, but learning how to make the bases without anything in them is where that comes from you know um and then everything else is uh, i tasted a salsa and it was a pineapple salsa and i was like okay that's weird and then i got a piece of cilantro with pineapple and i was like hey that would be a good ice cream <laughs> this is literally how his brain works <laughs> just so just with everything so like then I come out with pineapple cilantro, and it's my summer flavor every year because they're both cooling things. Mm -hmm. And so I know of 37, uh, 37 ice cream shops that make pineapple cilantro now because of me. Right. And I don't care if they're far away. Like, make it all you want. I don't care. Um, it has no impact on my business. But when you're in West Palm Beach, don't steal my flavors. That's right. weird. That is weird. Um, and I'm not going to steal yours because... That's who I am. Yeah, you have. Um, like, I might be, like, super interested in it. Uh -huh. um, I might play around around it, but I'm not going to copy that flavor because mm -hmm. that's weird. Yeah. Um, and I want you to do well. Like, I, competition to me is not competition because we do, we do similar things, but we don't do the same thing. Right. So when gelato shops get mad at me or yogurt shops get mad at me, I'm like, but we don't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they getting mad at you for? For existing. <laughs> for, for being higher rated. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for being successful. Like, I didn't... I assumed that we would be successful because, like, I worked really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I hired nice people. Mm -hmm. um, like, that's, that's... Going back to that. Like, that's the hardest thing. Like, I can train people to be... Yeah, you know, good ice cream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I can't try to be nice. Right. And so that's the part that, you know, they have to come with. And 100%. if you're willing to learn, um, and I'm not a difficult boss. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely so, not. Yeah, so like, I, I, I want you to have snacks. Um, you know, I want you to have fun. Mm -hmm. um, but parkour. Like, I want you to, to be crazy. Right. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, like, when a customer's in front of you, you know, I need you to be you. 
Yeah. Because you were hired for you. Mm-hmm. So. So, speaking of people, since we're already there, like, how much, like, what is, like, <clears throat> today, if any other business owners hear this or anything, like, how much has it, like, affected all the places you've been, how, the, like, level you put into your people? Because you said, like, two or three stories here where it's, like, yeah, like, I took this other job so this guy could, like, go be with his kids, or I scheduled this way so this guy could see his wife, like, how, and even with me, I mean, I wanted... I know senior year, like we changed my schedule so I could go to Friday night football games. And then like once on and off, I had a girlfriend. I was like, hey, I want to stay off so I could see my girlfriend. And right. you're like, okay, like we'll figure that out. What does that like do for your business? Because it made me stay for well, two, three years. Right. So it builds loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you show people that you care about them, they care about you. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't have any expectations that anybody is going to care about my business as much as I do. Because um, that's, that's not real. Mm-hmm. But I want them to be proud of where they work. Because mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, it matters. Yeah. Not to me, to the community. Yeah. So. Does that. Um, okay, just like a few things I'm trying to like throw at you. Um, you are like someone who's constantly around my generation of like <clears throat> college kids, little past college, little before college, and then all your business partners are your generation. What would you say to both to like, kind of like not fix them, but just like give them advice of like, okay, I see that your generation does this a lot and mine does this a lot. Like what can we do to like help both like point of views? Well, so my generation needs to actually listen and understand the motivation mm-hmm. um, and not out our experiences unless asked um, because our experiences are very different um, specifically within my community you know um, gay men of my age are all really detail oriented and that has been something that um, that we're known for mm-hmm. but me dying in the streets of Philadelphia um, to protest things um, me dying on the steps of um, government buildings to protest things allowed this generation to be who they are from the right. start. So the attention to details is receding because they don't have to hide when they're on the street mm-hmm. because they're accepted. Um, so, you know, now they're saying things like, oh, well, we don't really need gay businesses, we don't really need gay bars because we're accepted everywhere. But, yeah, that was three years ago that they were saying that. Mm-hmm. And now the, the crazy backlash has happened and there's so much pushback. Um, but I'm like, hey, so this is why we said these businesses were important. Right. Um, this is why we said that these kind of communities are important. Mm-hmm. Um, like Wilton Manors is two square miles. And there's, there's not an LGBT person above the age of 18 that doesn't know Wilton Manors exists. Right. Um, because it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're terrible to each other. Um, you know, we are, are really specific about our likes and our, our dislikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We are our own worst critics, um, but we band together. And, you know, we're at the stage where we're going to have to start doing that again. Um, 
and my generation's tired. Mm -hmm. um, so we need the new generation to to protest and to be right. interested um, in preserving what they have because we worked really hard to get them that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of us didn't make it. Mm -hmm. So a lot. Yeah. So um, young people need to ask questions. Um, need to understand why we do the things we do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they also need to talk to their parents, you know, about why don't you trust me? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's not explicitly said. Mm -hmm. It very rarely is. And if they do, then their parents will understand that that's the reality. That you're, you being a helicopter parent, even when I'm in my 20s, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you calm that down and you trusted me a little bit, our relationship will be completely different. Yeah. Um, so, but they need to have those honest conversations. Um, I think the black community does it really well. Mm -hmm. I don't think any other community does. Interesting. What do you think the other communities could do to like get on that level? Just have real talk. Mm -hmm. um, like, black folk could only rely on each other for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, so that they invested a whole lot in reality. Um, and so, you know, white people, we, we glaze things over. Yeah. Um, and Asians um, rely a lot on history. Um, you know, this is how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. um, tradition. Yeah. yeah, it's tradition. And this is why we do this. Um, so, you know, Latins are fiery and they'll have conversations, but it has to get to a certain point. Yeah. Um, so, the native people I know um, don't have many conversations because they don't want to upset mm -hmm. the previous generations. So, you know, but yeah, white people avoid aggression with within the family at all costs. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Yeah, it's it's there though. It definitely is. It definitely is. So, but um, so yeah. So if we all were a little more real mm -hmm. with our families, I think it would change everything. Wow, awesome. So, just to wrap it up here at the end, if there's one more thing that's like <clears throat> something you very firmly believe that you want people to hear, that like you just think about the world, whatever it is, like let it out. Well, that, that's a hard question to give me at the last possible moment. <laughs> it is. Um, I think really everything ends up being about love and respect. Mm -hmm. You're not going to love everybody, but you should at least respect them. Um, you don't know their point of view. And not everyone's job is to save you. Right. So, you know, sometimes they're doing all they can to save themselves. You don't see it because they're really good at hiding it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think we should just respect each other enough that you know, if we need to ask further questions, we ask further questions. Yeah. You make that connection. I love that. 
Awesome. So, everyone, this has been Daniel J. Colby, DJ, the man himself, and, you know, just the lessons he gave us today. If you're in the older generation, maybe listen a little better. <laughs> Stop being so adamant about the fact that you've been around longer, all that. Younger generation, actually ask some questions and stop caring so little about things. And probably my favorite of all is that it comes down to respect and love in the end. Listen, I, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but at least I try to respect them and I think everyone should do the same. So thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Reese. And you guys have a great time. So my name is Reese Karlinski. This was Talks for Our Times and you guys have a great day.